You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, episode 104, brought to you by Vessi Seeds. Well, folks, today we have a great guest, Stefan Sapkowiak, and he's here to talk about uh, permaculture because he's a permaculture gardener and things he doesn't do that are typical permaculture things. Who is Stefan Sapkowiak? Well, he's an educator, he's a biologist, a landscape architect. He's taught a range of topics related to plants and animals at McGill University, one of the top universities in Canada, owner and operator of a landscape design office for 20 years. He runs the largest commercial permaculture orchard in Eastern North America. And he's also the star, and this is how I found out about him years ago, a big fan of the, the permaculture orchard Beyond Organic, which is a feature length educational sort of documentary style film where he teaches you how to set up your own uh, permaculture orchard on any scale and just sort of talks about permaculture. I recommend anyone, if you can find it, watch it. Um, but uh, yeah, today we're going to talk about, because he's a permaculture expert, um, all the stand or number of standard sort of popular permaculture things that if you read books, they say, highly recommend that you do. Well, we're going to talk about some of those things that he doesn't do and why. Stefan, say hello. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Hi. That's a great topic. I, when, I, when you proposed that to me, I said, yeah, that's that's good. Because <laughs> permaculture is all about context. Well, that's the thing. And I mean, part of it, too, is it's, I mean, I get a lot of comment. I do a video where I use the word permaculture and I get a lot of, you know, I'll share it with a number of um, permaculture Facebook groups and stuff like that. And there'll be um, a lot of standard comments I get about what I should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And it tends to have people that read about it and watch Jeff Lawton videos and all this sort of stuff. They tend to have a way of thinking that's kind of set. Um, and I mean, I'm just a back, I'm not like, you know, I'm not gardening on your scale at all. I'm not, you know, growing things on your scale and I'm a backyard gardener, right? So there's a number of things that you might see in uh, sort of a high-end uh, permaculture how-to video or what you might read in permaculture one or permaculture two or many of the, <laughs> any of the endless list of permaculture books um, that just, they just don't make sense for what I'm all about, what I'm doing in my backyard. And, you know, I've got a full-time job and I, you know, by the way, I've got a wife that's not really up for everything. Um, she doesn't want, you know, pigs in the backyard, ducks or whatever, like that. She freaked out by all this stuff. She's a city girl from Ontario. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, does that make sense to you? Like, do, do you get a lot of that sort of thing? Yeah. Even, yeah. even, even the wife that's, that's not into all of it. <laughs> we have it simply solved. We have a place in the city. That's her domain. And yes. she decides. And I have a place where is the permaculture orchard. And that's where I decide what, <laughs> what I want to do. So that, that solves it. Yeah. Well, even with our property, it's, it's, you know, we got a couple, we got about almost two acres here. And I initially, when we bought the house, I put the garden in the backyard. And my wife said, like, why don't you put it back further back away from the house back there <laughs> and i was like but this is more convenient it's close to the house she goes if you put it back there i won't tell you what to do with it and i won't I, it's it's you can do what you want i'm like so i can do whatever i want oh my god <laughs> this is a dream come true you know i don't usually get to do what i want okay i'll put it wherever you i'll put it in the forest i'll just just if there wasn't a forest it was sort of like a wild field with like waist-high weed 
wild plants, um, which much more difficult to make a garden of than the backyard, which when we bought the house and it didn't even have grass, right? So the backyard was begging to be a garden, but instead I had to turn a, a field full of blackberries and weird weeds, you know, into a garden. But it's okay, because I can do what I want, right? So yes, I agree. All right, so let's start with the first thing, comfrey. Why don't you do comfrey? Well, maybe explain, I guess, first, let's maybe explain why it's recommended that you grow comfrey, that's important, and then why, why you don't. Hey, listen, comfrey is a great plant. It's, it's great because it produces tremendous biomass. Uh, you can use it as a mulch plant. It's great because it produces so much stuff. You can just cut it, toss it under your fruit trees, under your shrubs. Yes, there is absolutely a place for it. And when you have the right conditions, boy, it, it grows like a, in a weed. I mean, it can spread and take over. So for, in those conditions, absolutely go for it. And I tried it. I tried it all over our farm. And <laughs> I, I did a video some years ago about it. And there are some areas in some of our poorest soil, the thinnest topsoil. I mean, there's almost no topsoil. And it's sand. Our soil is not, for most of it, it's not. I was reading up the history of our site, geologic history. And we're on an old beach with the neighbors at the end of the neighbor's field, it's sand dunes. So literally imagine, you know, the seashore. Well, we were on the shore. And you know how when you have a big wave comes in, you think, well, there's a few inches of water. It doesn't all just run away. It kind of goes up. It goes in. You know, some of it goes away, but a lot of it just sinks down. Because if you dig, you see the water going down. Yes. So that's what most of our soil is. It's an you old mean like, beach. Uh, pro, uh, like as part of the St. Lawrence system? It was the old uh, Champlain Sea. The Champlain Sea actually had several levels. Oh. Imagine the whole St. Lawrence. What happened was because the St. Lawrence goes northeast, it doesn't go east-west. It actually goes northeast. Yes. And so as you go further north on it, it's colder. You know, you go up to the Gaspé, you go to, you, you go up almost, in, well, you go to Newfoundland, almost to Labrador, where it's the Gulf. At one point, as the southern parts, the glaciers were melting, that ice continued and it advanced and it created huge ice dams. Uh. So that as all this melt was happening south, because don't forget, just because it's south, there was rivers flowing into the St. Lawrence, both going north and wasn't as much flowing south, but it created this sea that uh, would go up. Behind the ice dam, yes. And every, every once in a while, more ice came, so the sea went up more and more. So there's actually, like in our region, there are what it's basically like benches. You go and you see, and then all of a sudden it goes up quite steep and another flat area. So all these benches are different levels that the Champlain Sea had in geologic time. I mean, it wasn't, wow. it was 10,000 years ago, but still. So we happened to be on a very well washed beach, which is like washed. There was no clay particles hardly or anything. So that's what we got. It's great for certain things. It used to be a, a commercial hop production. There was 300 acres of hops right around us because it was perfect soil for hops. And there is a water table nine feet down and hops do great. 
but so do things like asparagus. They love well-drained, but they can root really deep. So you find the plants that love it, and boy, they do really well. Right. But comfrey isn't one of them. I mean, comfrey roots, but it tends to root laterally a lot. Not, it does have some, but not nearly uh, deep enough to go hit that water table down. So we've right. had plants that we put in like six, seven years ago. We put in a plant because it would be like a carrot. Imagine a carrot with two leaves. That's pretty well what you could start with if you dig up a plant. So we'd plant a bunch of them. And six, seven years later, wow, it's got three leaves now. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it survived. That's all it did. Like it survived. It hasn't grown. It just hung on. And that's with irrigation. Right. So, yeah. Comfrey in the right context, if you have some clay, and that's why they say it is a, it's considered a dynamic accumulator, and it will accumulate when you have something to accumulate in the first place. Right. Like we, our soil is a washed beach. It's been washed. There isn't a lot to accumulate. You have to bring things in and to bring say, manure or mulch so that comfrey grows, that makes no sense. Put a tree that is deeper rooting, that will hit the water table, that will mine the water table and bring up some of those minerals, okay. But don't put a perennial plant to mine. So the reason people kind of went, what, how can you, how can you say don't put comfrey? Well, I don't put comfrey. I'm not saying you don't put comfrey. I'm saying I it was I tried it. We put a few hundred plants. I got, you know, some some uh you get one big plant, you can get 50, you know, uh, offshoots from it. And so, yeah, it really hasn't done it's hung on. There's one little area where we got a little bit more clay because I had put a lot of rock dust at one time and that's where the pile was. And there, okay, it's it's thriving there, but it doesn't really spread because as soon as you go a little bit further, it's gone, like that richness is gone. So yeah. you have to put things in context. And I know people think, well, you know, that's what permaculture is about. It's People hear so often, it depends, and it does depend. And permaculture is not a plant it's not a technique. Design and design involves look around, what does well, what's in its context. When you said, you know, on your property, you tacked away a bunch of raspberries, blackberries. I'd say, Greg, on your fences, you got to have blackberries. <laughs> if you hacked away blackberries that were growing on their own wild, put in a good, a non thorny blackberry. You got a weed plant, and that's what I always say, people. Grow something that grows like weeds. Yeah. For me, comfrey doesn't grow like a weed. For you, blackberry, I bet, grows like a weed. It grows really well here, but the problem is that so that the, the indigenous blackberries are extremely thorny, and they have tiny, tiny, tiny little blackberries, okay? And they don't grow high. They grow along the ground um, like like a creeping plant that's the indigenous ones that are there and they grow everywhere and they travel sideways and they i bought some beautiful i got actually from best i got some beautiful cultivars big fat delicious ones 
and I got them growing along the fence, just like you say. And I thought, well, I can just mulch, you know, because there's all these weeds that want to come in through the fence underneath the mulch and everything. So I thought I can just, I'll put cardboard down, I'll mulch the hell out of that, and I'll have these nice blackberries. Every year, every single year, somehow, no matter what I do to my fence, a little rabbit gets in, it stands on its hind legs, it cuts them off like a beaver, and it just, and it does all of them to get at the tips. It eats like a centimeter off the end of the plants and, and just leaves them there every year. And so this year I just pulled them all out because um, they they have to go like in the middle of the garden with a fence around, a second fence, a second perimeter, you know, like, and then if they're in the middle of the garden, because they're so big, they're going to be shading everything. Like they need to be at the back, you know, sort of, and I've, I've done other things in the back, but you're, you're right. Um, raspberries, blackberry, uh, raspberry, blackberry, any berry, all berries, they all grow great. You know, but it makes sense blueberry. why you say they were the, the, the prostate, the creeping ones, because anything that would poke up above the snow would get eaten. So the chance. only ones that could survive were the ones that stayed low. That's right. And really thorny. And, and just like you say, where they're probably propagated, uh, I think you've said this before, propagated by birds. They like the little ones, they could get it in their beak, you know, like that sort of thing, right? Um, I also put a, I just moved it this year. I had a grape plant along the fence, 20 feet this way, 20 feet that way. Well, guess what happens when you grow big, juicy grapes on a fence that backs onto a forest full of a thousand different herbivores? <laughs> they all get really interested in your grapes. And they get interested in your garden. Um, so all of a sudden you've got raccoon crap and porcupine poop. <laughs> Everything was into a, you know, so anyway, anyway, getting off topic here. Well, that's, that's always where I say the, the dilemma for gardeners is you're trying to grow a grape. You're trying to grow, you know, a couple of grapes. I found that, look, I'm, I'm out in the country. Everything is there. And I no longer consider I'm growing something until I reach 50. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hit 50 ASCAP or 50 blueberry plants or whatever it is, I can have the resident rabbits, the resident, whatever is eating them, they'll eat a, a part, but I will still have a crop. You can handle the pressure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so people say, well, then what? If you're in a backyard, you're done. Like, there's no way. I say, in that case, what I would do is if you found one that you really want to grow, let's say it's your grape, and you have a 20-foot cane new from the year, just start cutting that thing into cuttings because grape propagates super well from cuttings mm. and start giving away to all your neighbors. <laughs> Get them started, root the cutting. So that you orchard. have... Yeah. <laughs> Ideally, what you want to do is kind of be surrounded on all sides by your neighbors who have them. <laughs> because anything that's in the area often will start by the perimeter because yes. maybe they're not centered on your property. So they'll eat, you know, a lot of your neighbor's plants and may not make it all the way to yours or they'll be satisfied before they get to yours. That's a Machiavellian. No. It's a strategy. <laughs> you appear generous. Everybody's glad to get free plants. <laughs> well, I'm curious to see this year because my my raspberries, yeah, I, I put a second perimeter fence around them because it was the same thing was happening with my raspberries. Yeah, so I moved them instead of them being right along the fence for the rabbits. I mean, they go along and they're, oh, there's something. 
my favorite thing's in there, right? So now they're back, I don't know, six, eight feet from the fence. And they're with the second fine chicken wire perimeter around them. So even if they get in, <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll see. Um, but anyway, so that's the take on, on Comfrey. Yeah, I've never tried. It would grow, based on everything you're saying, it would grow really well on my property because it's just clay and it holds water like you wouldn't believe. Um, <laughs> you know, I have no, I, this is not sand here. <laughs> um, all right, next thing on your list was swales. Yeah, uh, I mean, you see that a lot. You're going to design, and I mean, again, context. So where that works great is, first of all, soil that will hold water. And so that's where right away for me, I I tried it in the early years, very like 30 years ago, I thought, oh, you know, raised beds. So I put in a few raised beds and I realized, no, it took me a few years to go, no, in my soil, I need to do sunken beds. <laughs> I need my path higher and my bed lower because what little bit water, well, whatever rainfall goes, it just goes right in. So maybe if the water would pour in, it, but it'll only hold so much and then the rest just free drains right out. Right. So we have a bit of a depression for about 10 days in the year. That's when the snow is melting, like we had it about, we had the snow melting, the ground was still frozen. The water will puddle in the low spots and it'll stay there until, I had it one time where I saw it happening, until somewhere in that, as you get shallow water on a, you know, a sunny day in the late winter, that water can warm up quite well. Mm -hmm. Even though it's melt water, it can warm up in the sun enough that it now starts to thaw the ground below it. Mm. And one year, I remember I was going to prune in the back of the orchard. Like I, I had to walk around these puddles because it would have gone over my boots. It was that much, like there was over a foot of water. So I went around, I was coming back for lunch. And it's like, could see where the you know like the, any ponded water you could see the water level was up here and mm -hmm. it had receded already quite a bit and i thought that's strange because i mean it was up there this morning and it's already gone down this much so i went closer around and then as i got to the center of the the pond i could see plant matter swirling you know like in a drain right bubbles swirling i could see that whirlpool happening like i see like the water must be going in quite fast and the water's causing a swirl but that's pretty neat i didn't have a phone at that time to film yeah. that or, so i went for lunch by the time i came back like half an hour later everything was gone like it had dropped a foot of water into the soil literally an hour no more than that and it's like Okay, so, you know, as much as if I swaled, it, it, it wouldn't do anything. Like, <laughs> all I'm catching is meltwater, and it really doesn't matter because it's not like I'm putting that in to the top soil. It goes right to the groundwater table, which is about 8 to 10 to 12 feet, depending where I am on the farm. And it just goes next door. We have a big lake. That's right. They dug because they dig for sand and gravel. and 
any extra water just goes right there. So uh, I pump from there. That's how I get my irrigation. So like I can't over, if I overwatered, all I'm doing is I'm putting the water into the groundwater, goes back in the lake, and it's just like the cycle. So mm. you have to put things in context. Swales in the right conditions, mm. when you have more of a clay soil, when especially clay soil, like if you want to find out about swales, go see Jeff Lawton's vid, yes. uh, YouTube channel. He's got some incredible things. But Australia goes through really wet period, and mm -hmm. then really dry period. So they have a wet season and a dry season. Yes. And if you can bank enough water in the soil and in some ponds, mm -hmm. you can make it right through past the dry period and have water plants and so on. Conditions, absolutely, you know, go for it, <laughs> put it in, do it. And so put it in context, uh, swales in the right condition make a huge difference. Uh, ben yeah. Falk had done a, a, a bunch of them on his property, he's got that book, The Resilient uh, resilient Homestead, I think. Right. And yeah, he's got way up on the hillside in Vermont. He's up on a mountain, but because he holds that water, yes, he replenishes ponds and so on. So you right. have to put it in context. Swales yeah. can be a great solution. I mean, in our conditions where you have meltwater, melt water, for example, and then two-month dry period, mm -hmm. and you have soil that can hold some of that water, that's perfect. I mean, we'd be, you know, yeah, great. I, I cringe when I see desert areas flooding. It makes me cringe. It's like they, they have never enough water, but when they have it, it causes flash floods. Yeah. Conditions, yes, put in swales. Yes, collect the water. Yes, put gabion dams and, you know, sand dams and all. There's so many techniques that could be used. Swales, just one part of a system of water holding. And the whole point is slow the water going away. Yeah. Spread it out. So you don't want to just hold in one place. Swales is great because it'll spread your water out. It could go a kilometer in each direction. Yes, like you yeah. may have water flowing here, but if you hold that water for a time when it's, when let's say the water goes up because it's raining a lot mm -hmm. and then you, it can run along a swale, which is a swale is just a, a ditch on contour, meaning mm -hmm. there's no slope to it. So that water will always seek to be level and it wouldn't go a kilometer or more in each direction. Mm -hmm. That's where you spread the water. Now you're spreading that water instead of being just in the channel or just in the valley, yes. you can water a whole, you know, a whole ecosystem on each side and then you let it soak. So it's slow the water, spread the water and then sink the water into the soil in those yeah. conditions. Yes, do it, you know. But it's not all conditions. So that's where that context is so important. Right. I actually just built a, a swale. I have a goldfish pond in my backyard that I just built. It was a place where water collected naturally. So I dug a hole, put some fish in it, and they all died. And then I made the hole bigger and put some fish in it and made it bigger and bigger. Right. So now I've got a self-perpetuated goldfish pond. But it's it's nowhere near. It's not in my garden and i've anyway um last year i built a pond in the middle of my garden 
And one of my viewers said, it shouldn't be there. It should be in this other spot at the base of a hill and it can be a swale. And I was like, boy, you're right. Not only that, but it was like in the sun. I, I put a pond in the sunniest part of my garden. Well, that's actually where I should be growing peppers and tomatoes and stuff like that. And the place where the viewer said I should have the swale or pond is like this wet, always too wet, not very good sun spot. So it's a terrible place to grow. I'm trying to grow things in a terrible spot. And I've got a, a pond in a, in a great spot. So uh, this big exercise in making, turning, basically making a pond swale. All right. And then I can use that water to water my plants and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's been a major, I was just out working on it this evening before, uh, before I called you. Uh, major, major project. Uh, at some point uh, this later this spring, I'll be moving the goldfish to their new home <laughs> and filling in the old pond. <laughs> you know, in our climates, if you have that much water, because it sounds like water isn't that far down. Uh, oh, no, I mean, what? even tonight. So I'm, I was digging a trench. There's a part of the garden. I basically did something you suggested where you said, go out, go out in your garden when it's raining. Go out when it's windy and have a look around. So I did exactly that. And so I could see exactly where the uh, garden's on the side of a hill. I could see exactly how the water, where it goes, right? So I've got this basically river that forms a canyon because my garden's on a slight grade, 5% uh, slope or a five degree slope. Um, so it basically washes down my walking paths. I should have made the beds, you know, instead of like having defined beds, they should have been like crisscrossing so the water would go around. But I didn't because I was, you know, thinking, organizing, organizing the garden like a spreadsheet, right? Um, but anyway, I could see where the water is going. So now I, I'm creating these trenches to direct all of that runoff from the hill into the into the pond. Because every time it rains, it'll get fresh water. And so tonight I was just digging this trench and I dig a hole about a foot deep and I get the, the thing about three feet long and it just starts filling, the water's coming up <laughs> out of it, right? I mean, it won't do that in August, right? I mean, but right now it's just, it's just water just coming up out of the ground, you know? So yeah, all I got to do is dig a hole and there's water. It's, it's just... It's all clay. So, I mean, the soil just holds water. It's clay and rocks. Um, holds water anyway. And you've got this big hill, which is like a tiny mountain. Like my children, when they were little, called it a mountain. Um, and, you know, it's maybe 30 feet high. But, yeah, it's just, there's always stuff coming down it into that space, right? So, yeah. yeah. One, of my, one of my permaculture students in the first years I was teaching PDCs, he has a property where he happened to have quite a low spot. And he right. thought, I don't really need a swale. But what he did was he said, I'll do the same principle because that happened to also be usually a low spot is where kind of all your fertility flows down to it. Mm. So he just dug swales and he found the most useful thing was the area was too wet otherwise. And by digging and taking that soil and just putting it next to next to the swale, he'd create a low spot that had water. And then he'd have a higher area, a bed that was always irrigated. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of a, there is a, a principle that they used in Mexico, uh, chinampas, where you have basically a canal with mm -hmm. water and you take that soil and you create a garden above it. 
so that's an old, old idea, but it works really well because one of the things that happens is once you dig it as a swale, all the like the leaves, everything, you know, if you have a pond, you're always digging up stuff that's falling in. Yes. But that stuff is all organic matter. And it Very always rich. mixes with with some of the best things, which is your clay particles and silt particles. Yeah. So if you combine <laughs> organic matter with clay particles, you got the you got the basis for really great soil. And so you just dig that and keep putting it on your beds. As you clean out, don't throw, never throw away whatever you dig out of a pond and just put it on your beds. And with time, those beds will become incredible. Yes, especially if you've got goldfish pooping. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, absolutely. Uh, the weird thing with that, well, actually, we'll, we'll save that later because we're going to talk about another subject related to that. Um, the next thing on our list is uh, the food forest. The notion, actually, people are always asking me, why don't you have a food forest? Because I have some trees and I got some bushes. Um, I've got my own reason for not really working with that concept. Um, I think there are good reasons why it won't work for me here. Also, it's got so, a lot to do with my goals in terms of what I'm trying to grow. But anyway, why don't you, I mean, you have a permaculture orchard. <laughs> How, yeah. why, why is that not a food forest? I, I like to make the distinction because... The idea of a food forest, so it's, you're, it's producing food. The idea of forest is fantastic in areas, I say, that are no longer light limiting. You have an ex, mostly you have an excess of sunlight. That's not the case in a temperate climate. You oh. have to get to about, you know, 35, dude, start to get where you got so much sunlight that you want to have the equivalent of a forest because there's still so much light that comes down that you will grow plants underneath your trees. Yeah. You're in our climate, you're in a northern or, or if you're in the southern hemisphere, you're in a southern, you know, temperate forest. Once you get under those trees, there is not a lot going on there. I mean, there are plants. And a lot of times those plants are spring plants. So you go into a forest and you go, oh, it's, still, it's lush. There's Look at all the green plants. Yeah, what is it? Ferns? If you're Excuse in a garden, you might get pasta. Wild strawberry. Explode in the spring. They put out, yeah. you know, they put out a lot of growth very quickly. Yeah. It work. But then all summer, they're just sitting there. They're really not growing anymore. They're just maintaining. And it doesn't take as much sunlight to keep them maintained. But in a subtropical, in a tropical, or even in, a, in an arid climate, usually it's arid because not that there isn't enough, like there's too much evaporation. So there's mm -hmm. too much sunshine, especially in a, in a hot arid climate. You need something like a food forest to grow things because you need to create shade, which will then allow you to grow other plants. Again, I'll say go go see the best example of food forest that, that you can find right now, especially a created food forest. And I highly recommend go see Jeff Lawton's yes. uh, Jordan project, right. where when you see what it was like 10 years ago, where it was a rocky, rocky hillside. I mean, there was... It was solid rock hillside. There was no soil there. They created all the soil by 
bringing in some organic matter, jump-starting the system by giving a little bit of organic matter and a little bit of water and the hardiest plants and how it evolved over the last 10 years is, is you see that it's awe-inspiring when you see that, why do we even have deserts? Like we yeah, don't yeah, need yeah. to have deserts. We created deserts, but we don't need to have deserts. Right. But it, and that is a very sun abundant climate. Like you, the shade is, allows you to grow things because you have shade. Even their vegetables are grown under shade cloth. Much sun. Yes. So as soon as you have an opening, you have to create shade. Yes. That's very different from our climate. If I can't even imagine trees, what that's like. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, it's incredible, but it's not our condition. Yeah. So in our conditions, and I've seen people try to do this, it, it's okay in the first years because your trees are small and everything has sun. But I always suggest if you're going to grow fruit trees, you can have them touching on two sides, like in a row, in a clump, or like in a, a C pattern, or whatever you want to do. You can have them grow as long as they're just touching on two, but they have sun on two. Because in our climate, a food forest, when people say they're growing a food forest, they're not. They're actually growing a forest edge. Not yeah, a food yeah. Forest. Like a forest edge is not the forest, it's the edge of the forest. So we should call it. Uh, a food edge forest, you know, or a food forest edge, because that's what in our climate it really is. If it's successful, it's because it's it's simulating the edge of a forest and the sunny side. Yeah, there's the only like side. one edge <laughs> or maybe no, no, no. three at most, but not four sides. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. So yeah. that's where I, I call it the permaculture orchard, because it's mm -hmm. really there's a reason why we have in temperate climates yeah, we don't yeah. have a forest fruit trees and if you do and there are places uh i have a, a a dvd about the origins of the apple yeah you talked about that last time the kazakhstan Incredible. Right? and that is a forest of apples and pears and so on wow. people are picking the fruit on the ground they are not climbing these 30-foot trees because don't forget, the trees grow to their maximum height. Mm. And because it's a forest, every tree is kind of battling to get up, to get to yes. the sun. And when they're maxed out, the, their leaves are here, up in the canopy. Uh. Oh, that are a bunch of dead branches. Yes, yes. Birds perch and so on. Yeah, yeah. The leaves and the fruit are all up there. They're not all along like in, a, in an orchard where there's right. sun on at least two sides. They're yes. not. Right. The, the fruit are at the top and it's okay for the bears because they don't want to climb the tree. They want the fruit that are ripe to fall. Right, that's right. what they eat. <laughs> so if, you know, if you're grazing your animals in there, no problem. The animals will take the fruit once they fall. But if you're growing them for yourself, a food forest, and that's what the problem is, your harvest will gradually increase in height to the point where you no longer will harvest anything from the ground. Yes. Yeah. So a food forest, you have to put it in context. Again, context. And it's great in the right places. But if it's if you think, well, I am, you know, I'm in a I'm at 45 degrees uh, north. Well, then you're not really growing a food forest because mm. it's not a closed canopy system. It's a forest edge. 
So just, you know, to, to kind of make the, the, the more precise definition of it, it is a forest edge if it works here. And that can work here, and but you're simulating a forest edge. That's the funny thing is that I mean that's exactly right, and that's on my channel. I just did a whole thing last fall where I reorganized the entire garden. So the way I had it, and uh, right up until last fall, was in the center of the garden, and the reason it in the center of the garden I had a row of trees, center of the garden. The garden's like a circle, and in the center now. It was originally that way because that was the edge. But then I made it bigger on the other side. And things would grow on the other side because the trees were small, right? But as the trees got larger and more mature, basically nothing would grow. Everything that was near the trees grew poorly, right? right. Um, and the only thing that grew well near the tree was weeds because <laughs> they don't care, right? But yeah, you try to grow strawberry it gets out competed by grass and dandelions and it just it just strawberries would grow so so what i've literally done is exactly what i've this fall i pulled everything out i don't know what i killed or what's still alive i put all the trees at the back on the north and then six feet in front of the tree give or take i got a row of blueberries right forest edge right on the south side yeah. right and then in front of the uh blueberries I have uh, lingonberries, you know, like a partridge berry, lingonberries, strawberry, that sort of thing, ground berry. And then the, the, all the vegetables are south of that, right? It's an edge. <laughs> it's a forest edge, that's, right? That's exactly it. Because <laughs> that's, and people will say, why don't you have a food forest? It's like, that's, I, I need every ray of sunshine I can get in this place, you know, and I need all of it. I can find not only that, but I mean, because we're maritime here, we've got all this fog and clouds and, overcast days you know we have days where it'll be a beautiful sunny day inland but the sun doesn't even start shining here till like one o'clock or something like that it's foggy right so once that sun i need all of it all the sun i can possibly get you know and the garden nestled in among trees and big you know stuff like that so i actually just went around the garden in march and cut the top off of like basically I reached up as high as I could and cut every tree within six feet of my fence so that I can get a better angle of sun, you know, every little bit of sun I could possibly get. And in my garden, I've got the, all the walking paths. I used to have them um, with wood chips. And a couple of years ago, where I replaced it all with sand. The ocean was that it would be like the walking paths were a desert and the garden beds were oasis. And I was doing it also to reduce the risk of uh, ticks, right? Because basically, apparently, I had a tick expert on here that they do not like sand, where the juvenile ones don't mind wood chips. But the side effect was that the sand pathways, because sand is rocks, the thing, it's like literally a microclimate. It's hot. You can literally, on warm days, on a day where it's 20C and it's sunny, I'll walk across the lawn, it feels nice. And you walk in the garden, you're like, oh, holy smokes. Like you can feel the heat coming up off the ground, right? And become and when the sun goes down, it's hot for a couple more hours because it's it's a heat sink, right? And it's had a positive effect. I mean, most people in a lot of parts of the world are like, what are you doing? Why are you capturing all this heat? Right. But this is unique here because we're a peninsula and you know, I'm, I'm much further south than you, but it's it's got that maritime effect where um, you know, we're just we're sort of starved for we have cool summers you know right. uh, so we need some we need heat and it's just been the weirdest sort of 
uh, yeah, I've got like a heat farm <laughs> trying to capture heat with sand. Um, well, when I was traveling through New Zealand a few years ago, one of the things I'd never seen used in orchards, and they were really going big on it, was in orchards, they would put reflective sheets. Like they would unroll, uh, like they mylar? would try different colors, but they would use a ref not to the point of mylar, but they would have, like they found red to be quite good. It okay. would absorb and it would reflect kind of, it would do both. And so they would roll that out on each side of the trees. They'd have these long, you know, films of it and then they'd weigh it down. And they used that to produce, just to give some bounce light. So light would come through. And if they could bounce 10 or 15% light back up towards the tree, that made a huge difference in coloring fruit. And I mean, really? that's why they prune so much is to allow light to color your fruit. Otherwise, right. fruit are kind of green and, you know, they, they don't color up as much. Right. And so, yeah, you know, I, I know because when we traveled, which is the town that has the reversing falls? You're coming down the valley towards the river valley. Yeah. And like you drive into a cloud and I'm thinking four o'clock in the afternoon. How come it's, it was completely overcast, but it was sunny out. It's just that you're driving in that fog zone. Yes. And they said, yeah, it often can be one, two, three, even four o'clock before it clears. It burns yes. off. I thought, wow, like um, you don't get the sun. And Oh, my wife found it really weird because she's from Oakville, Ontario. Right, where you've just got this perfect growing conditions and it's basically it's I mean it's a residential zone, but probably some of the best agricultural land in the country. Yeah. Right. It's a real kind of a kind of travesty what it's become, and that's from a from a gardener's point of view. Um, but yeah, all this fog <laughs> and the weird things like we have like fog, ice, and sun, snow, and <laughs> all these different weird conditions, you know, different the only thing they say, the, you know, the, the Inuit's got like 100 words for snow. We have so many kinds of fog, we have rain fog, and it can be sunny and foggy, and it can be fog that becomes like a, a kind of ice, and there's a rain fog. So it's like you can be outside, and it's it's raining, but it's not really raining because it's kind of a fog rain. <laughs> so, the first time I had ever seen fog and snow. I had never seen that before. Yeah, yeah, fog, fog snow, fog and snow, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a special place, but uh, yeah, but every you know, every place has got its own weird dynamics, you know. Uh, okay, the other thing was the the herb spiral. Again, context: we're growing at a you know we're growing acres scale, and I mean herbs. I remember the first years we had these two hundred cell trays that I bought a bunch of, and it was like okay, so there's two hundred little cells, and I thought, all right, I'll. I'll plant out three trays, three trays of uh, uh, chives. You know, I thought, okay, chives germinate like literally a hundred percent. So I sprinkled all these seeds, and I got six hundred plugs, which was, you know, it's a one inch by one inch plug, two inches high. I had these six hundred plugs of chives, so I thought, okay, you know, I'll put them out in the orchard, and I did a few. A few rows because our rows range from 300 feet to almost 500 feet long. So I was calculating the other day, we have over five kilometers of rows. Each side of the tree, 
that's double that because you have the row on the sunny side, let's say, and the row on the shady side of the tree. So that's like 10 kilometer of row to right, right. plant. Right. You figure the, the amount of plants it starts to take. So <laughs> yes. 600 plants really didn't go very far. Right. Then they start to grow up and they become, you know, a full head of chives. Yes. And then they start to flower and seed. And then any little hole anywhere, more chives. Well, I quickly realized I'm already way oversupplied in what anybody could harvest or use in chives. Yes. yes. Same thing with garlic chives, same thing with thyme, same thing with oregano and so on. So I realized quickly, you know, an herb spiral is a great thing, very limited space. And that's yes. why Mollison proposed it. You don't have space. And some of the best gardens I've ever seen would say, I don't have enough space. They just aren't using the space they have. The best gardens are the tiny little, you know, 20 by 20 garden, backyard garden. But if you go into one that's had some thought, where yes. now, think of it, 20 by 20 feet, you have 400 square feet. I always say to people, you know, design by the square foot. Think of every square foot and now yes. think, what can I put in that square foot? Yes. And the absolute best way to find lost space in a yard is look at your lawn. Right. And I call it the lawn test. You know, the step test is where when you look at your lawn, divide it into square feet for three weeks. You have to do it for three weeks. Measure what square foot. So I had clients of mine, I used to have, give them a diagram with the with you know all squared off. This is your yes. lawn squared. And just keep track. Where did you walk on your lawn? What did you use? What did your kids use? You know, just just do the exercise for three weeks. And when I come back, we'll go over how much of your lawn, because they think, well, I need all this lawn. Well, what do you need it for? Give me a good reason what you need it for. And I have never seen a client use more than 50% of their lawn. Yeah. Like 50% right off the bat, they go, well, I, no. And my redefinition is the only time you step on it is when you're mowing or somebody's mowing your lawn. If yeah. that's it, you're not using that that square foot of lawn. Yes. And so if you apply that, you find all kinds of space uh, in your garden. Yeah. So it's a great way to find space in the that's garden. The thing that grass lawn is a what is it? A lawn is a grass garden that you feed gasoline. <laughs> It's a holding pattern. I mean, it's just holding the the soil there. Holding the soil in place. Decide what better use you could put it to. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that uh, that makes sense. I mean, that's for me. It's the same thing. I got lots of space. Um, so, and and I've always found like because the idea of the herb spirals, it's a bit of a dome. So there's sort of a shady side, and a sunny side, and an east side and a west side, and you give everything. It's you know the the thing that needs the most sun, they go in that zone. Um, but for where I am, uh, all my herbs get as much sun as they can get. <laughs> I have them on the south side of my house and, you know, next to my driveway because they're easy to access. And they're all just lined up on the south side of the house. Oregano, sage, thyme, uh, you know, tarragon, all it's all right there. Um, and they're all just big, you know, bush size sort of plants. And um, yeah, but I have like all this yeah. space. If I had like one of these people that has an allotment or something like that where... 
you know, they live in an apartment and then you get, then you have to get extremely efficient with everything. Um, so it makes perfect sense. Yeah. For herbs, you really, what you described is the perfect situation up against the house. You yeah. need thermal mass in our climate. Herbs love hot, dry. Yeah. And if they can have a rock wall or that's why the herb spiral was really just piles of rock, you know, piled yes. around as the spiral goes up so that you get lots of linear feet of a bed space but they're always near rock where they can accumulate the heat and it's raised so it's well drained that's what makes for you know having good herbs drainage for me isn't a problem <laughs> and so uh yeah i grow well, lots actually, of herbs tell you a funny thing so that my driveway is paved now right but it used to be gravel and uh that part of the driveway would always uh, have dandelions and things like the, basically it was like this weedy gravel, right? And it's a brand new house. So it's like the rest, the rest of the driveway didn't have weeds because it was new, but that are you part, may, are you saying that dandelions are weed? Well, you know what I'm, you know what I mean, right? Um, <laughs> you don't want dandelions in your driveway per you know, you don't have to mow your driveway. If you get dandelions in your driveway, you're going to have grass in your driveway. You're going to have, you're going to have everything because the dandelions, they call it, they, they, you know, they create the organic mass, like your comfrey, right? They, they basically mulch and fertilize your driveway. And then eventually you've got everything you can imagine in your driveway. Um, and then you've got plants growing up underneath your cars, rusting your car out, especially where we are. Um, so anyway, it was just that right against the house and the gravel, there was all these weeds growing there, uh, mostly dandelions. So to me, thinking like a permaculture, a guy said, this is where if the things want to grow here. Why don't I put weeds I want here? And herbs cool. are herbs are weeds, right? <laughs> In all the ways that matter, right? They just this tough thing that'll grow anywhere. Um, so all I did was I planted them right in the gravel. I put a little wooden thing around it to make it look pretty. And then I filled that with sand because it would be weedless, right? Because it's like a like a, a seed, weed seed lands in the sand. It's not going to germinate because it just right. doesn't hold moisture, right? But it's always hot because the sand gets hot. Um, once a year, Perfect. I just put a little bit of um, compost tea. I don't even know if it needs that because the root mass, you know, it's gravel over clay, right? So yeah. there's plenty of, I mean, everything there seems to do fine, right? Everything there gets bigger every year. So much so that I actually had to divide up uh, my sage and oregano last year because they were like, I don't know, 16 inches in diameter, right? It's just too much, right? But I mean, that's permaculture's first principle is observation. Observe it and that's really good observation you did to, yeah. to, to make the jump that, hey, if those are growing well, what's a similar one that I could use? I mean, some people would be using the dandelion, but if you say, hey, the dandelion, what is it? It's really a pioneer. It's a plant that's trying yes. to create, like you said, it's creating good soil for other yeah. plants. Yes. And grow something that you're going to use. That's right. And that's a good strategy of putting the sand. Yes. <laughs> well, and I got all the dandelions I need. I got a lifetime supply of dandelions. <laughs> that's why you have such healthy and happy rabbits, too. Well, exactly. Well, that's a funny thing, too. On the north side of my garden where nothing grows, I actually planted a couple, um, what's it called? Like cultivated cult uh, dandelion cultivars. It's called punto okay. dandelion. It's an Italian dandelion. So they grow, they don't bolt. I mean, they do eventually, right? But they're very slow to bolt. They make big, big, and like, I mean, no dandelion tastes great 
raw. I always think if I describe the taste of dandelion greens, I would say they taste like poison. Um, but you cook them and they're, I cook them, right? That's what I do with them, when, okay. especially when they're young. Um, yeah. So anyway, I got them along the, the sort of shady part near the fence and they grow well there, even though it doesn't get good sun because they're dandelions and they got bigger, bigger. Uh, I take some in the spring because that's when they're nice. And I just leave them alone all all um, summer. But then in the fall, they put on another phase of growth and the greens are nice again. Mm -hmm. This fall, I was waiting for the greens to get six, seven, eight inches long. A rabbit got in through my fence and it ate them all down to the ground like the day before I was going <laughs> to harvest them. Like the rabbit knew, you know. You could know. smell them. Yeah, they could probably see yeah, exactly, right? And they knew it was like the rabbit knew when to harvest them. Yeah. I mean, there's rabbits all around the place, right? They didn't come in in the summer when they're bitter, right? They came in in the fall. Oh, no. So it wasn't new growth. That's not right. It was that weird effect with kale and other plants where after a few frosts, they start right. to taste way better. So it was yeah. that. I was waiting for the frost because I noticed like kale and um, collard, everything, all the crucifers taste so much better after a frost. And Weeder, I was, less bitter. Yeah. I was yeah. hypothesizing that the dandelion greens would be better in the fall. And I assume I was right. <laughs> I don't know because I didn't get to eat them, right? <laughs> oh, okay. So last thing is uh, aquaculture, which is a very, you know, yeah, the idea, I think the thing I seem to recall is you create some sort of massive swale pond type deal. And then you, you throw like a lot of your waste in there and you fill it up with tilapia and they eat all that stuff, you know, your kitchen scraps and all that sort of stuff. And you can use that water with all the nutrients and you eat the tilapia and it all, a, a fish like a tilapia, but it's a very popular one. Um, so, uh, but I certainly don't do that. <laughs> so why, why did you never set up anything like that? I mean, I, I think I know why, because I think you've already told us. <laughs> <laughs> well, because our soil doesn't hold water. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I put in one little pond in, in that area that I said we had put in rock dust. Yes. Rock dust is basically, it's the it's clay particle size. Right. But it's dry. It's a dry powder when you get it. And so it infiltrated deep enough in the soil that we actually created a, a, an area. And that's where I put, now I dig and we have our pond and, I mean, it holds water most of the time, but we do top it off, especially because in the summer, capillary action draws the water out of the pond. Mm. Like the surrounding, when it gets dry, just to balance the, the moisture level in the soil, the drier areas away are pulling or are wicking that water yeah. out. And you can use that same effect, like I was saying, if you dig and you hold water, then your vegetable area raised above will wick water because right. they're going to go down to the water level. If they need, they'll actually create a uh, an osmotic pressure that will make soil or water go up. The same right. principle. How does sap run up into a you know a hundred foot tall maple? Right. It's the osmotic pressure that because of the way the blood the blood vessels well the the, <laughs> the vessels in the tree bark are set right. up they can actually cause there's no pump it's it's simply a principle that if you make a small enough tube water will go up and as soon as you create a bit of a pull at the other end it has to go so it's a I mean it's phenomenal what nature has done and mm. so. The reason we don't have the ponds in larger scale is just the water, the, the soil does not hold water. I went to my neighbor who has 
uh, sand and gravel operation. So we do have a about a 15 acre lake right door right next door to us that's still growing because they're still extracting sand and gravel. So that's great. We have a <clears throat> nice big lake next door. It's because they've gone to, and I say our water levels, you know, eight feet down from the soil surface, we have water. Well, what they do next door is they dug that eight feet of sand. When they need surface to drive on, they dig about seven feet. Then when they're done and taking all that soil out, then they come with the big digger and they dig 30 feet down. Right. And now you've got a 30 foot deep lake. It's a quarry it's lake. Fantastic. You know? I mean, yeah, yeah. we, you know, we got our water next door. It's not our water, but it's. And so I asked the neighbor, I said, well, you think you could a pond on, on our. And he started to just kind of did a mental calculation. He says, you know, if you want to have with somewhat of a, a shallow slope, he said, I'd have to take up like a quarter of your farm just to create a pond. Because if it's too small, all you're getting is groundwater and the water will be really cold because mm. I've had it where they've dug and I've been down in the bottom and man, the groundwater's like nine degrees. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Anytime, the heat of the summer we are digging and the water is, is really cold down there. Right, 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 right. And so you have to create enough volume of water to create a pond that you could swim in. Yes. And so he said, you know, I'd have to go this far out and then yes. with slopes and he said you know I'd, I'd be using up the whole big chunk of your farm just to put in a pond just to put in a pond right and the pond you have like how uh how large is the one you it's you do there? it's basically 10 feet by that's 10 by 10 around and there's a little island in the middle where we have some willow growing okay and that's yeah, it so like i mean the it's the size of a small car sort of thing that's <laughs> yeah a little decorative pond and i have some goldfish and they survived yeah. the winter because what i did was i put a barrel i i when we dug it uh, and when the water goes down if we don't add any water in the summer it'll go dry right. at times so i waited till it went dry and then we dug you know half four feet whatever a, a 55 gallon drum is and then we just cut two holes in it enough so that you can't really put your foot in the holes. And we just sunk that barrel in, backfilled it, because the soil is clay enough that it'll hold. And so what the goldfish do in the winter, because the pond during the winter actually goes dry too. Uh, so the fish right. live all in the barrel and they overwinter the successfully yeah. in the barrel. <laughs> and so we counted them the other day, there was 17 that had survived. So that's my aquaculture, you know, on a very small scale. Yeah, but yeah. if you're doing really well, and if you had the right site and you put in swales with the, you know, with ponds, well, if you're going to have ponds, why not have fish? If yeah. you're going to have fish, uh, why not have frogs? And if you're going to have frogs, why not have crayfish? And yeah. so on and so on. So that you really, and water in our climate, water is, is what grows plants the absolute best. Yes. I used to work in, in um, Lake uh, Manitoba on the south shore of Lake Manitoba at the Delta Marsh. And when you see how much productivity there is in a marsh system, like how fast cattail grow to be eight feet tall in a matter right. of like 30 days, they literally yes. hit. It's incredible. But you realize you've got this warm water with 70% organic matter in the bottom 
Yes. It's perfect conditions. I mean, all the plant light. has all yeah. the water it needs, has all the nutrients it needs, and it's middle of summer when it puts on its explosive growth. Getting so crazy light, you know, like lights reflected amazing out. Amazing and reflected. So yeah, you know yeah. what I was saying? So it has the direct and reflected. So the growth is is phenomenal. In our climates, any low spots, we should really think of in ponds, and using them. And there are plants you could put in that will give you a crop in a wet area. There are oh, plants. I'm not saying wild, uh, wild rice, wild rice. You, you need know. a little bit of running water for wild rice. Right. Wild rice. We have it in the, in the immediate area. We have it in any of the ditches. It will grow. Wow. So I remember our plants. If you look up, I mean, there are plants everywhere and people have made use of it in the past just that we're not making use of it a lot of times, even cattail hearts. Yep. You think it's cattail. Yeah, if you strip the green leaves, you have this kind of a piece like leek, you know, the white part of leek, it looks like it. And you can cook it. And, and so there are lots of plants that could be produced if you did have the right conditions. And again, I reiterate context. Yeah. You know, if you have, and I, I, you know, when I used to do a lot of landscape design and consulting, if people said, oh, I have this big problem that there's a part of my yard that's always wet. You know, it's terrible. It's wet. I say, well, that's great because yeah. it's wet. Making a pond there, it, it, it's super simple. Dig it and you're going to have water all the time. That's exactly what how actually the one I had. The, uh, so I created one this summer. I filmed the whole thing. I actually filled it back in because it was in the wrong place, right? But once I got the thing dug, I made it four feet deep and it was like six feet in diameter. So it's just this hole. And the idea was just to have a place to have water. So I didn't have to run my garden hose. And then I said, well, I might as well put fish in it or it'll be full of mosquitoes, right? I need something to kill the mosquitoes. And then I was like, well, okay, if there's fish in it, then I need to have some plants to keep the water. So all I did was I went down the road where we've got the ditch and I went to the bottom of the hill where the where there's cattails and moss and stuff like that. And uh, I got some I got some of that moss that was growing in the rocks and I pinned that to the side to the banks because this is a moss that sort of grows along the ditch and it, it touches the water. Right. So I put that all along the angled banks and then I went into where the water was and I just stirred it all up with a stick and put it in buckets, just this dirty, nasty water. Right. I just put a couple of dumped a couple of those buckets of water in my little pond. And by the end of August, I had cattails at every kind of pond, uh, you know, I had all these water plants that I didn't pay a dime for. Um, right. <laughs> it worked. I mean, the one thing I did pay for is um, I care what it's called now. It's a, a, an aquarium plant that looks like seaweed. Um, so eel it's, grass. it's like, it's not eel grass, but it's, um, it, it's it's something you'd put in an actual aquarium, but it's supposed okay. to be hardy if you can keep it submerged. I think it's supposed to be, if you can keep it a couple feet deep, it'll live. I just can't remember the... Uh, Elodea? Hawk, haw, hawthorn? Thornhort? Hornwort. Hornwort. Okay. Hornwort. Um, so people use it in their aquariums, but I did some reading and they said it's pretty tough. Um, so... And I, I read some blogs where people said if you can get it a couple feet below the surface, it can actually survive the winter, depending on how if yeah. your pond holds water. So I, I put it in the deepest part of my pond for the winter. I don't 
there was a lot of it I could see dead floating when the ice melted, right? Um, but anyway, I put that in a little pond and it like quadrupled in size over the course of the summer. Um, so that's the only thing I spent money on um, because I'd read so many good things about it. It's just this, it's just eating up all the nutrients, right? Um, but uh, yeah, the, the weird thing with uh, my pond is it's, it's, it's barely over a foot deep, the water it holds. Normal water depth is maybe 13 inches, but it stays like that all winter long. The fish are in just that much water, right? I thought about having exactly what you said, like some container, uh, but I was just too lazy, right? <laughs> so, but it holds water, right? And also we have a different kind of winter where, at least I think we do, where any month of the winter, we can have all the snow melt, right? You can have a, okay. yeah, yeah, you can have a, it can be minus 20 Celsius. And then a day later, it's plus 10 and pouring rain. Um, and all the snow disappears and everything goes away. And then it goes back to minus 20 C. And then it snows a lot. And then it all melts again. Um, so your pond's constantly getting all this water and stuff like that, right? Um, and it's buried in snow. And you think, God, how are those fish surviving in it? Like there was one part of the winter where I took an ice auger. And I said, I wonder how much water's in there. And there was probably like eight inches of water underneath the ice. And those goldfish, you could, on the days when the conditions are right, you could see them underneath the ice just going like, what the hell's going on here? Um, they're amazingly tough fish, you know, goldfish. You could, you could literally just take a shovel deep because you have water. You know you have water holding. So you could take basically like a five-gallon bucket, just dig out the equivalent of a five-gallon bucket. Mm -hmm. So even if whatever, you still have that five gallon. I mean, how many aquariums there are that are five gallons? Right. So just dig a little deeper and that's that's all you need. You don't need to put a bucket or anything or a barrel or just dig right. a spot a little bit deeper. And it'll also be the place where most of your organic matter will end up in. So it's right. it kind of concentrates where you dig out and then you uh, dig out the deepest area just right. makes it easier to clean out regularly. Does your your thing doesn't have a bladder, I assume? Your pond has no bladder? Like a no, no, rubber rubber no. thing now, same as mine, no. yeah. Yeah, I think that's no, a big I mean, thing. A yeah, that's what you want to they... do. Look for the wet spots yeah. and just take advantage of them. Exactly. And what yeah. you said is absolutely, I, I kind of laugh when I see people buying aquatic plants. Aquatic plants are the absolute easiest thing, like out of the out of the plant world, aquatic plants are the easiest thing. You just need, for most of the plants, all you need is a little piece. You grab a piece. Last summer, we went fishing at one point, and I saw a bunch of different species, and I kind of made out about six or seven species, and I just grabbed them, and we put them in a bag with a little water. When we got yeah. back, I threw some on top, but a few of them that I knew were really bottom plants. Yeah, yeah. I just put them down and put a piece rock. of rock on yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. Like it takes a little piece of, of a green plant, and you can. That's why uh, some of the what is it? The Eurasian water milfoil has really spread in parts of Canada because if you have a boat and it went in the water and your propeller chopped up some of this <laughs> and you bring the boat out and now you have a little bit of a plant stuck to your propeller and you're driving on the highway, you think it's gonna dry out. It, I mean, they're so tough that when you just get to wherever and you put your boat in, you've introduced this plant into a new water body. 
Like that's how easy it is to multiply these aquatic plants. Mm. Seeds. I used to work with a guy in, in Manitoba who studied the germination of the seed bank. And when you have a pond or a marsh and it stays at a certain level for a given, let's say two years, it's kind of at that level. What happens is most aquatic seeds float. So like cattail and all that, they float. So they'll land on the surface and they'll go with the wind to the shore. To the edge, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they create, and it's called a seed bank because you have this really dense area of seeds. So what he would do is he would take the water level, would slice a core and he would go down three inches, six inches, 12 inches down the water column because each see. level had different seeds. Yes. He, did, he would have these hundreds of these trays with just a bit of that mud and he would put some water to see what would germinate. And I remember he brought me in to show me, he said, this is like, it's pretty wild. There's one place at one, like how fast these plants grow. So he say, you know, watch this. So he put in uh, this mud, he'd, he'd take the sample of mud and he'd expose it to the sun and to some water where it just got wet, but it was no longer, let's say submerged. Yes. Within 30 minutes, cattail would start to germinate. What? Like you'd have to look closely, but you could see the seeds were already germinating. 30 minutes? Minutes. It was, when I saw that, I thought, oh my God, like, okay, they were tiny, you know, for, but it's not days and weeks before. No, when they hit, and, it, and he was looking at all the parameters, they have to have, once they hit a certain moisture, and most importantly, the water has to reach a certain temperature. Yes. So basically think of, you know, the marsh is drying down and yes. the water level's going down and it stops there for a bit. Water hits a certain, especially in the shallow areas, pow. Like imagine you have this mud flat, you know, it's muddy. But now that mud is moist and it's hot. It's, that's why you see it in no time, you know, you have cattail. Some of these plants, they will colonize an area so quickly. That's it's incredible. Right. So well, what you did, just go, and that's one of the best. Go to your local pond and go to your ditches. Yeah. Because ditches are a repository for a lot of aquatic plants. Yeah, yeah. And whether you take a sample of the mud or you take some of the actual plants, they propagate so easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I have to remember that edge thing. You know, that's, uh, and that, that actually, that's where the cattails, I had a shallow part of the pond. Right, because you want different levels for what you know, different aquatic life and fish can forage and that sort of stuff. But it was that shallow, muddy part where all the cattails grew. Um, but I didn't put cattail seeds there. I just put this dirty pond, dirty ditch water, basically. That's what dirty, dirty ditch bog. You know, it was basically a, a bog that was part of a ditch on the side of the road. Yeah. But dirty in ditch. that muddy water, everything were... was there. Yeah. <laughs> that's literally how easy it is to create you know people yeah. are watching and they go i was digging a pond and i bought five you know five hundred dollars yeah, yeah. of plants you could have just gone to the ditch and got some muddy water and probably half the plants would have well, come up on their own that's how i got the idea was when we bought our house this was all brand new development right so the ditches were created by machines so the ditches were just like the surface of mars just rocks Right. Um, and then so that was 2011. 
And now the ditches have a thousand kinds of plants and cattails and everything else you could possibly imagine. And it all happened in within it, you know, it happened pretty quickly, right? Yeah. Um, you, you'd never know it was just barren. You'd never know. And I thought, well, that's what you want, all that stuff. And you could, when you look at the ditch, you see there's things that grow at the very bottom. Right. And those things do not grow on the side. And there's things that grow on the side that, that don't grow a foot up from there. Like you can literally see. And when you look at the hills that go into the ditch, like on, they got the road, the ditch, and then the hill. You can see where the drainage is. There's things in the drainage zone that grow that don't grow anywhere else, right? So those things need a lot of water, but they can't handle being submerged. You can see there's things in the ditch that don't mind being submerged at all. And there's things that don't mind be, being a little bit submerged for some of the time. And there's yeah. other things that need a lot of water, but they can't handle being submerged at all. And it, it all just, you can just see it all right there, right? So I said, yeah. okay, well, this is easy. I'll just... Put that crap in my in my little ditch pond, you know. Uh, I'm surprised. Yeah, it's good observation. I mean, that's yeah. what that's what it's all about. Yes. Nature is just an open book if you're willing to stop and read. Just look at it. Yeah. <laughs> just look and think. <laughs> and it's, it doesn't hurt to be cheap. A really miserly person. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's being frugal. Let's say yeah. frugal. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That was great. You know, I was thinking thinking of you the other day because um, I don't know if you ever heard of the the famous quote by um, uh, Solon of Athens. His famous quote about uh, each day grow a little older and learn something new. Um, so one of those things is inevitable, right? But um, <laughs> uh, that's what I always think of when I talk to you because I, I mean, I always learn something when I talk to you. Um, but I always feel like you're constantly like you just never seem to stop uh, learning. You know, I, I feel the same way, you know. It's... Well, one of the things, as you get older, you realize you think you know, you know you don't know a whole lot. Yes. If anything, the humility should come with, geez, the more you learn about something, I always looked at it as a funnel, you know. You start and you think, oh, I'm going to learn all this. And you realize you're still at the very opening of the funnel, but it's out here you get to the edge you go oh my god that funnel goes on forever yes you could yes. take any topic and go absolutely crazy you could say a pond and study your whole life about a pond to just realize you know what i know this about ponds like yes it's I mean, people who and i've been around some really great scientists and and it's great because they they will really point out how nature is humbling and that geez, I barely, barely scratched the surface. And, yes. and that's really what it is. It's not going to show you everything because a lot of things, you're really not at the stage to learn it yet. Right. Like your right. foundation is not there. As your foundation grows, now I can show you another layer. Yes. Oh, now my foundation grew. Now I can show you another layer. And now you start putting pieces together. That's where mm -hmm. it really gets exciting. Oh, now I think I'm getting it. Now another layer opens up and it, it's never ending. It'll mm. only end. And honestly, it'll only end when you think you know it all. And that's when it ends. Yes. Like as soon as yeah. you think I know it all, no, then, then nothing more is revealed. Because that's, that's right. what learning is. It's, it's, you, you get revelation. You, you know, it's opened up. It's revealed to you. Yes. If you think you know, then that's the end. There's no more revelation because you're not in a mindset 
to be open to get things revealed to you. You're in the mindset, I know. Well, forget it. You don't yes. you don't know. You know just what you think you know, which is really the end of it. I tried to write an article uh, about a month ago. Um, I'd heard, I was watching some guy on YouTube talking about karate. I don't, I don't do karate. I've never done karate in my life. But it was just interesting, right? Sometimes you just watch something because it's interesting. And he was talking about, they have this term, I can't remember what the term is now, but some term in, in I can't remember if it was Chinese or Japanese, but it means the student mind. And so that was the title of the article, The Student Mind. Um, and it was about like just that's that kind of humility where you're you're seeking, you're 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 willing to learn, you're you know you're in the right. You know if you remember when you were a student and you're just drinking in what the professor's saying and you're just in that that great state. And um, and yeah, why not stay? Why not just stay there? Right, that's stay right. <laughs> just stay in that. There's so many people they finished high school or whatever, and they're like, okay, now I know I don't need to learn anymore. It's like don't you realize you barely know anything at all? Like there's so much more to know, you know, like one of my, uh, one of my heroes, Socrates, right. When they, they said he was the wisest man in Athens. And he said, well, if I'm the wisest man in Athens, it's because I'm the only man that knows that he knows nothing. Uh, you know, it's a, That's a, right. a famous quote. Um, so yeah, that's, it's a great state to try to stay to be in. Um, because then you start stumbling upon new things, right? Great conversation as always. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. It was great. Yeah. Oh, it's it's always on. good. I love learning exposures in, in other climates, in other situations, because it, it opens your perspective. I always, one of my professors in landscape design was in plant design. And right. he said, you know, design is like, you ever see an artist and their palette, you know, they'd have, Yes. They have their three colors. He yep. said, imagine, you know, when you're starting, your palette is just three different colors. So you can paint some red and you can paint some blue and you can paint some green. Or you can put some red and blue together. And now you get, oh, but you get the shades of it. Okay. Yep. So he says, as you grow and your palette is really your experience with the plants in the environment you're familiar uh, with. Right. So right, he right. says, when you think, you know, you're learning about more and more and more plants and you're adding colors. So now you have more combinations until he says you travel and you realize it's a completely different environment. And my palette that I had is not directly, you could get some base, but mm -hmm. you start with a much smaller palette again. And now yes. you got to learn the new environments. And so yes. that's where traveling is so amazing. I mean, if you have your eyes open when you're traveling, it's like, what is this? What's yes. this? What's this? What's this? So it's, that's, it's... that's kind of what started me on this path because I moved. I lived in Wolfville, which is a part of Nova Scotia, which is beautiful soil, great agriculture. It's where we grow everything, that part of the province called the Valley, right? Great soil, great weather conditions, great sun, great everything. And actually, it feels like Southern Ontario when you're there. Um, it doesn't feel like here where it's cold, wet, and damp, foggy all the time. Um, so I lived there for seven years. And everything you planted, I mean, it didn't matter what you did. You're successful no matter what, right? Um, so I thought, I'm an amazing gardener. Everything I do grows well, right? 
And then I moved here and it was just like, everything was subpar. And uh, so that's when I started, uh, when I stumbled across your video and, and I just basically started sucking up. I got to know more. I don't know. Clearly I don't know enough because I'm failing. <laughs> I don't know how to grow in this, this situation here. What am I, what's wrong? Is it my soil? What's the problem sort of thing, right? It was actually really simple stuff, like not enough sun. Uh, you know, you're you're a sun farmer now, and you know, and maybe the soil, you know, get a bit of a drainage problem, but not always. That's usually not the big problem. It's usually the sun, the sun, you know, sun, 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 and sun. <laughs> That's where, like, if you if you're, I would think if you've seen the stuff by Sepp Holzer. Oh yeah, yeah, I Austrian love his book. Farmer, he Very he's got a similar situation, situation yes. to yours because yes. he's got the altitude element. So what he did was he put in a lot of ponds because he found that if you get a pond, what does it do? It warms up and mm. you get a little microclimate and it reflects. Right. So he always would put his ponds with rocks on the south side of his pond so that the mm. sun is hitting the rocks and it's hitting the water and hitting the rocks. Mm. And those were like giant climate batteries. And so he was growing things that there's no way it should have grown there. But because he was growing them in the cracks of the rocks, mm. the climate was not what that mountainside uh, in Austria was. Right. And so and it, it's, yeah, like you said, putting sand, putting rocks, having water. These are all climate batteries that accumulate heat. Because even if you only have two hours of sun, but if that two hours can be spread over four hours, you've just doubled your growing season. That's like right. That soil warming effect has been doubled. Yes. Well, he also does the uh, hugo culture, you know, which I do a lot of. Uh, I do it out of cheapness because basically I, I got rotten wood everywhere. Um, and so whatever I need soil, I just dig a dig a big trench, throw a bunch of rotten wood in it. And now I've got all this soil sort of thing, right? Uh, a lot of the beds in my garden, um, you know, because they're all raised a bit. So if I see the soil level dropping, I just I just dig a trench, throw a bunch of rotten wood. You should just try because some of his hugel beds are actually not buried. Like it's not dug. No, it's up. Yeah, that's right. It's up. So you <laughs> should try a few because I suspect your water is far enough that in the spring it keeps the soil cool for a long time. Mm -hmm. So if you put hugel, like make a hugel bed, but don't bury it. I mean, mm. bury it, but don't dig. Yeah, I know so you, you start by piling your make a pile of rotten wood yeah, and yeah. then cover with soil. What it'll do yeah. is it'll give you your warmest soil in the garden. Mm. It'll give you, especially if you put it with an absolute south face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will be the first place because it'll be like having up against the house. And if maybe on the top, put some rocks to mm. to just add a little bit of heat cat, and you'll be your earliest start. Mm. And you could literally put your peas on the top row in. Uh, by now oh yeah 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 that's a great idea i just planted my potatoes this week in the gar in the greenhouse in the greenhouse, the greenhouse right. and it's like plant potatoes in a greenhouse yeah well otherwise i'm planting potatoes uh middle of may if i want to put them outside that's about right for here yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> great all right man so um everybody i hope you found this interesting uh, if you did, please like, share, subscribe, and until next time, get out there, get at it, have fun in your garden. Stefan, thank you so much for being with us.
My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Great, man. Hey, if you want to help support everything I'm doing here, go to Vessies.com to buy whatever you need for your garden this year. Use my coupon code GAVS23 to get free shipping as long as there's a pack of seeds in the order and there's no oversized items in the order. Check out the description box of this video for details. You can buy everything you need from Vessies. They have seeds, fruit bushes and trees, soil amendments, pest solutions, tools, clothing, and lots of other stuff too. So yeah, if you want to help support everything I'm doing here and they sell something you need, buy it from them using my coupon code and happy gardening.